This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Jay Dyer, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you, glad to be here. How influential is Hollywood? I would say now it's not as influential, obviously, as it used to be. I think streaming, internet, gaming has really displaced Hollywood. We've seen the collapse of the older studio system. You know, the biggest directors in the world have talked about this is kind of faded out. It's kind of going away. So, um, not so much anymore it still is turning out the propaganda but i think it's less effective but it also kind of uh served its purpose it's already pretty much done what it was intended to do which was mind control and toxify the entire culture that's what's happened and so you know i don't think that the elite uh so much care about hollywood anymore because it's done it's done its job so they can move on to other things and you know it can be sold off to, to china or who, whoever owns uh, the majority of the studios now using movies as propaganda or telling stories is you know that's part of the ancient world but the invention of the camera like pretty much as soon as it was invented they saw the potentiality for using it uh, you know for social engineering for war propaganda so early on the camera begins to be used to film uh, war propaganda. So I think that's the first real psychological warfare component of it. Uh, and that really just expands and grows as uh, Hollywood becomes its own entity. But you have other countries, obviously Germany does the same thing where they use a lot of propaganda uh, with the, with film. Um, Russia does the same thing. Uh, you get the UK doing it uh, and, as well as Hollywood. So it's pretty quickly seen to be a real crucial tool for propaganda and then it becomes movies and movies become these you know their own whole next level of propaganda where you get the first uh big epic films by like howard hughes or these these uh you know pro-war propaganda films as to why we need to go to go into war so um then we get master propagandists like you know people don't realize hitchcock was that was a big propagandist he actually filmed a lot of stuff uh, for war for the Ministry of Information, so he was doing British intelligence film work uh, as a propagandist, um, and of this this is the case the case for so many directors. As as we move on, you know, more and more stuff comes out about people's backgrounds and their history, and uh, you know, you've got famous uh, directors like I was just reading about John Huston. You know, he he was uh, <clears throat> almost in the OSS. He came really close to being basically an OSS recruit. Um, which is the predecessor to the CIA. And, and it's just like, you know, even stuff that I didn't even cover in my books because I didn't know yet. It's just more and more stuff comes out about how many actors and uh, directors and producers had, you know, these high level security clearances. They were part of Wonderland Studios, which was the, you know, famous Air Force uh, uh, film base that was like the, t the cutting edge of its time that, you know, Walt Disney and. Marilyn Monroe, all these people had access, Jimmy Stewart, all these people had access to, and they were filming a lot of war propaganda. So basically, as Edward Bernays says, that, you know, Hollywood is really the greatest engine for propaganda the world's ever seen. But that's more so the case for the 20th century. I think as we move into the 21st century, it's now shifted to, you know, the internet and video games. Movies are an extension of art, and art has always been about 
a message. Is it unusual then that Hollywood would be filled with propaganda? No, you're right. It's not unusual that it would be used in that way. Naturally, that's what people would use it for. I think the problem is that, um, you know, the West is a pioneer of a lot of technology and inventions. And you get people like D.W. Griffith, who really pioneered the movie as a movie. He would make these gigantic, uh, you know, three, four, seven hour movies that, that people would watch. And so the, it just took it to a new level when you started combining um, moving imagery with editing, which is time manipulation with music, which adds an emotional component. So it's a weird, uh, unique form of art that's more powerful, I think, than previous forms of art. I mean, symphonies, you know, operas, those kinds of things definitely could move people, but those were typically relegated to more uh, upper class. And so Hollywood was very powerful, I think, for reaching and propagandizing middle and lower class people. And then it turned into a thing where you know, you've got a lot of psychological warfare writers and, and spies and intelligence operatives who wrote books explaining how they could, when they started uh, beaming Hollywood into different, you know, older cultures, uh, like, for example, Miles Copeland in Game of Nations, he says that one of the ways that they completely changed and revolutionized, modernized Egypt was through uh, Hollywood. So they just started beaming movies <laughs> into into Egypt and uh, that contributed to the social upheaval and the, the social engineering. And there's a famous quote, I think, even of Netanyahu. <clears throat> Somebody dug up, it was going around. It was something he said in 2003. Uh, he said something like, you know, if you want to change a culture, just start beaming. I don't remember what movie, what show he said. Something like, start beaming sex in the city into their culture. How has Hollywood used symbolism and perhaps subliminal messaging um, in, in an effective way, in your in your opinion? Well, uh, if you look at people like William Peter Blatty and the exorcist, Blatty was a uh, psychological warfare expert in Vietnam, and he actually employed a lot of techniques uh, in regard to various uh, Vietnam operations. And then he <clears throat> used that same principle when they made the movie The Exorcist. So a lot of people don't know that The Exorcist was a form of uh, psychological warfare. Um, that came out in mainline uh, publications many years ago. And that's one example where I think there's a couple frames where they insert various subliminals and it seemed to have had an effect at the time on the audiences. They were definitely creeped out. I mean, obviously other elements creep people out, but they would do things like insert like, you know, these, these demonic faces in. and um, there's other examples of Disney utilizing sexual subliminals and stuff like that. So I would say it's been, it was fairly effective. I think that at one time it was uh, banned. It was considered illegal to do that. But subliminals are just kind of one form of uh, manipulation. I think that everybody knows about putting subliminals in to influence you to buy popcorn and to buy candy during the films. So this kind of stuff is kind of innocuous and less uh, sinister. But really, I mean, <clears throat> I don't think so much subliminals are the big deal as much as it is things like, you know, movies like Argo or movies that, that are basically made in tandem with or under the consultation of the Pentagon or the CIA or the 16 intelligence agencies to really just craft stories that help form people's, uh, you know, worldviews. That's that's the real danger. And so, you know, it's ironic because in the last 20 years, we've really seen a whole slew of films that have come out openly made in consultation with the CIA. So you've got The Recruit with... Al Pacino uh, that came out 
uh, one of the earliest movies that was publicly made with a CIA consultation. Now, many movies had been prior, but this is where they're just sort of coming out of the closet and saying, yeah, we do this, of course, sure. Mm. Um, and they even make movies about how they do that, like Wag the Dog, um, which is about the CIA consulting on various uh, film productions to stage a fake war uh, in that plot. So, <clears throat> you know, this goes on. It's very real. Uh, I was actually surprised when I studied this and got into it, how deep this rabbit hole go goes. And I was studying it at an academic level. I just thought, well, these movies are movies. You, you know, why would it have anything to do with the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies and all this? And there's a lot of academic literature on this. And so that's kind of what inspired me to, you know, start writing chapters on this that eventually became, you know, the first book, as Turk Hollywood One. And then part two, I focused on more of the power structure, like, uh, you know, these entities that we're talking about, organized crime, how organized crime plays into it as well, because there's always been a, a link between organized crime and the intelligence agencies in the West. Uh, that goes way back to Operation Underworld. So a lot of these uh, worlds overlap. They tie in. Um, and that's, I think, how we have to really see it. Like I said, there's many of these. American Sniper, uh, you know, Propaganda, uh, you, Zero Dark Thirty made in consultation with the CIA, uh, you know, Argo, Ben Affleck. I mean, on and on and on, right? For example, one I always like to point to is the transition from Cold War to the war on uh, on T-E-R-R-O-R, -R -R, right? Uh, in James Bond's stories, you know, the Ian Fleming stories, he had bond transitioning from fighting against smurfs which was actual soviet counterintelligence to then fighting specter which is an international uh organization hell-bent on world domination through terror so specter is not any specific nation state it's an international terrorist organization right and that's interesting because within the bond stories themselves we move from cold war uh, even in the 60s and 70s to international terror and that's way before the uh, official war on terror takes place right uh, in into the, the 90s and uh, uh, after the you know 2001 event so that's what really kicks off the so-called war on terror but we noticed that the war on terror had been planned decades earlier uh, and there was even a, a giant conference that uh, a bunch of neocons and Brzezinski were at I think in the late 80s that kind of set the stage for and planned the coming war on terror so it's not surprising that we then see uh these former allies of the united states like the mujahideen uh which would become al-qaeda that suddenly they're the enemies right overnight so from the 80s they're the, they're the heroes they're invited to the white house as the freedom fighters and then in the 90s that it just flips night and day and now uh you know that we have the 1993 world trade center bombing which was a false flag uh and then we get of course the the 2001 event and other terror events but between that time uh, and then you can see in Hollywood kind of mirroring this ahead of time by, you know, through the Bond stories, which at that time were, I think, the, you know, one of the biggest, that was probably the biggest franchise in the world at that time. <clears throat> it was later overtaken by, I think, Harry Potter, but, or maybe Star Wars and Harry Potter and then Bond, whatever. So, you know, many, many people, billions of people perhaps, you know, might even see James Bond movies over time. So that, that's why they're so important for, uh, for propaganda. And I, I've, did a lot of research on this in grad school and i even found old pravda articles from i think the 60s or the 70s where they were analyzing uh the bond uh, character his symbol and his imagery and they were pointing out how it's all just uh an, a personification of western decadence 
uh, and then and they're projecting Bond as this image of the West. Is that actually the Soviet uh, anal analysts were correct about the character of Bond? That was precisely what he was supposed to be, uh, which is what I kind of dealt with in my grad work with, with the figure of Bond as a Cold War symbol. But I'm just making the point that um, you can see this form of uh, you you were asking about different types of uh, programming, subtle programming. You see it with Bond by Ian Fleming, who, as we know, was high level British intelligence. He worked in naval psyops. Um, so the, the stories that he's writing were not always true, but basically more or less based on real people that he met or composites of people that he met or operations of other spies that he knew or his own operations that he was involved in. So we see a, a transition from uh, Cold War to War on Terror. <clears throat> and uh, again, all of that was in fiction before it all rolled out. This was happening also throughout the cartoons. If I think back to the old Bugs Bunny anti-war cartoons, I mean, that it was very obvious propaganda. Yeah, I mean, uh, even better than those are the uh, Disney cartoons. Uh, you can just look up all the war propaganda uh, cartoons that Disney filmed. You know, there's Donald Duck in a d dozen of these. There's, you know, Donald Duck telling you to pay your taxes, Donald Duck telling you to go fight against, uh, you know, the Axis powers. Um, yeah, I mean, cartoons have always been involved in that all the way up until the 1980s when you have uh, I think his name was Friedman, this character who was a, uh, I think, like a Pentagon uh, psychologist who was consulting on uh, TV shows like Transformers, uh, consulting on G.I. Joe. And when you watch the old G.I. Joe shows, which what what I grew up with in the 1980s, uh, you know, you have them basically dealing with literally with MKUltra, uh, with weather warfare, with microchips. I mean, all of that is in the first and second seasons of, of G.I. Joe from like 1986, 1987. So, um yeah, cartoons have been a huge uh, domain of propaganda. We 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 t definitely see that today, where we see the craziest stuff you could think of in kids' cartoons with promoting, uh, you know, Bruce gender ideology. The FBI and the CIA, for example, are almost never shown in a bad light. Yeah, this is because so there's a book called Operation Hollywood that was written, I think, in like 2002 or three by an academic. Uh, some professors, one of them is David Robb. It's called Operation Hollywood. And in that book, he explains how the way it used to work was that you'd have to uh, make a deal with the various, the 16 plus intelligence agencies. If you wanted to use an aircraft carrier, you'd have to make a deal with the Navy. And then the Navy would, you know, say, have a say in the, in the script. And that they would go through the script and say, okay, we don't like the portray this in a negative light. Make this positive and you can, you know, film on the aircraft carrier. So. It used to work like that, uh, and then it turns out there's a FOIA request uh, a few years ago that was done. I, I covered in the in the first part of my second book, and uh, there were documents declassified that showed I think it was something like several thousand TV shows that not only were, were the scripts changed, but they actually in inserted four thousand pages of documents through FOIA requests from the CIA and and the uh, Pentagon that the u.s government worked behind the scenes on over 800 movies and a thousand tv shows everything from james bond transformers hawaii 50 america's got talent oprah jay leno cupcake wars on and on and on salt with angelina jolie which is another cia made movie top chef and uh 
these all relate to uh, inserting specific um, propaganda messages of all all manner into, as we said, about two thousand movies and TV shows for the last Top few shift. decades. <laughs> huh? Yeah. Well, if you think about it, movies or TV shows like that are part of uh, culture creation. So, for example, you might have, uh, oh, he's a disabled vet, and he's the one that you know comes in as the chef, and he wins uh, the you know season. I don't, I've never watched Top Chef. I don't even know. I don't know what they do. Do they you know cook a, <laughs> a brownie and see who's the best? I have no idea what they do. You get screamed at by uh, that chef that's always cussing people out, Gordon Ramsay or whatever. I don't even know what the show is, but. I'm just saying that, yo, know, they probably have the, you know, wounded veteran who becomes the winner or something, you know, stuff like that. Like they'll write into the storyline, right into the script. And yet, by the way, people don't know reality shows are scripted, by the way, <laughs> they're not, they're not reality shows. So um, I'm guessing that, but I mean, it could be all manner of things. I mean, that you could have, um, you know, military recruitment. I mean, that's what Top Gun is. Top Gun is like a, you know, naval mm -hmm. recruitment film. I mean, my dad saw it and thought, yeah, I want to join the Navy. It'd be really cool. So, uh, yeah, it's very, very, very real. Um, but this is, a, uh, it'll been going on for a long time. I mean, you go back to the Cold War and, you know, the military, the, the Hollywood was uh, at times pushing and at times uh, denying, uh, you know, the, the red infiltration, this kind of stuff. So they, for example, during the Cold War, there were uh, certain uh, studios that put out a lot of Roman Catholic material, right, to prop up uh, Cold War narratives, and I included that in my second book, like the the movie The Prisoner, the Alec Guinness uh, movie, where he's playing, I think, Cardinal Minsinski, who gets uh, kidnapped and supposedly brainwashed by uh, Soviets. I mean, that was just th those are just uh, Cold War Roman Catholic CIA propaganda films that were put out. And that's just one example. I mean, there's all kinds of propaganda that, that were put out. Movie uh, Miracle of Fatima <clears throat> that came out during the Cold War. Again, um, you know, William Peter Blatty puts out The Exorcist uh, also during the Cold War. And he did, uh, uh, you know, anti-Soviet uh, psyops during the Cold War. So, you know, that's that's something I cover throughout the book. There's a stark difference between Top Gun 1 and Top Gun 2. You can see the wokeness creeping in in the second one. For example, in the first one, you knew exactly who the enemy is. In the second one, the enemy is unknown. Good point. Um, yeah, I think they were trying to be very careful about who, <laughs> who might get offended because they tried to, they did a remake. Remember when they did a remake of Red Dawn and uh, the Chinese government, I think, lobbied to make sure that they couldn't use china or north korea as the villain in this in the storyline so that's that's funny that they did that but that's also because i think china has a pretty strong uh invested interest in, in some of the older studios that used to be um not chinese owned right now they are so <clears throat> that's part of the reason for that but um i just i thought the new top gun i was kind of surprised that it was so successful you know i guess it was so successful because People are, are longing for this old uh, 80s idea of what America was and what <clears throat> freedom was and this kind of stuff. So I, I guess that's why it was so successful. But the film itself, to me, it just seemed like basically the same storyline of the original Top Gun, you know, with the original Top Gun is really goofy. If you go back and watch, it's basically like all of these uh, subtle quasi uh, Skittles themes. Uh, you know what I mean by that? Rainbow themes. 
uh, go look up the Quentin Tarantino commentary uh, on what he thinks Top Gun is about. It's pretty funny if you've never seen that clip. To- literally, Tom Cruise takes like 20 showers. It's like <laughs> literally like 20 times he takes showers and you're watching and you're like, what is this? And he up- doesn't drop the soap. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and it's like, oh, he's going to sleep with Kelly McGillis and they're uh, at the point where they're about to do it. And then he's like, oh, I got to go take a shower. It's just weird. He does this like five times in the movies. Tom- <laughs> like Tom Coombe is like, like his shower habits or something like that anyway um it's just weird but it is propaganda obviously and it's a recruitment drive it's all the above and that's because in the 80s reagan i think appropriated a bunch of money towards uh, hollywood you know pushing and promoting military stuff and you see a lot of those in the 80s they had these weird kind of there was a bunch of cold war iron eagle which was air force uh, versus Soviets, Red Dawn, uh, Navy SEALs, which is, uh, you know, Charlie Sheen versus uh, Islamic terrorists. Uh, there's a whole slew of these coming out in the 80s, right? Uh, Top Gun. And th- those are all kind of part of this phase. And then it, things shift in the 90s. We move over into like the uh, war on terror. So it, it, then we start to notice Hollywood pushing through you know true lies we get one of the first big blockbusters that has uh, arab terrorists as the villain and to me that's a significant you know shift away from all those old cause obviously the cold war is coming to an end the walls falling and all this stuff so they got to have a new global enemy which they had cooked up a long time ago which is was international terror and they just used all their old uh, puppets and assets from the cold war to now be the new villains russians are always spies right um and that persists all the way up until today. They're still doing that, right? I mean, they've been making movies like all the new Jack Ryan series. Those are all about <clears throat> Russian terrorists and Russian villains. Um, that all the Tom Clancy's were, you know, Russian terrorists and villains working with the IRA, working with the, you know, Islamic terrorists, which is a ridiculous narrative because the Islamic terrorists are always working with the Western intelligence agencies. They're not working with the KGBs. So it doesn't make any sense. But yeah, they have to keep perpetuating that because I think they knew that there would be probably a renewed Cold War, right? So we're in a new Cold War turning into a new hot war, I guess, by Ukraine. But um, that's why they continued the, you know, the, basically Hollywood's propaganda is always just whoever the establishment doesn't like, right? That's that's the true villains. So who leads in terms of shaping opinion? I'm sure it was a, uh, well, the mass media led in the 20th century. So, you know, all of the networks were created and owned by people from wartime intelligence, people from the OSS, that's who went into and ran, uh, you know, NBC, CBS, ABC. Um, so mass media really was the uh, perception management tool. So that's kind of died and it's been in the death throes, I think that's the legacy system. And so that's why we're seeing such reactions like this new S686 bill, SR686, which is attempting to basically just make everything that's not the establishment narrative into disinformation. So mass media was what controlled perception. If you go back to some of the, say, Peter Sellers movies, you wouldn't be able to get away with some of that stuff today, like The Party. Even up into the 80s, right? I mean, you can watch 80s comedies, like, you know, people from Saturday Night Live, you know, Bill Murray, John Belushi. Those 80s comedies uh, are completely not PC, right? Which they weren't even that 
it's not like they're some crazy right wing thing. They're just like jokes that people make. Uh, but you know, that's where Tavistock and these various uh, social engineering entities have wanted to take us and where they have taken us, which is into a total brave new world, uh, you know, thought control, mind control uh, area territory. I suppose the most obvious one is the matrix. Yeah. The matrix is a little complex because it functions, uh, on a, a couple different levels on the one level, it seems like an anti-establishment movie, but of course it's a movie made by individuals who were 100% working with the establishment. Right. So, so a lot of what Hollywood does is create kind of fake counterculture. And that's what I, uh, I think in the, I can't remember the first or second book, but we, we did a pretty lengthy, you know, uh, matrix breakdown and, uh, you know, the Wachowskis also did V for Vendetta, which presents this, this narrative that, um, the future coming dystopia is going to be run by right-wing Christians persecuting Skittles people, which is just preposterous. I mean, it's just, that's completely backwards, completely inverted as to what the real dystopia of the fortune 100 is pushing uh you know it's not run by right-wing christians obviously uh, the, the the corporate uh one fortune 100 dystopia is is not that it's not that it's the very opposite of that they're pushing everything but that so i see that movies like that uh you know guy fox and be for vendetta they really capture they try to capture the energy of counterculture reaction but steer it into um fake ideas and ridiculous ideas that liberty is you know changing your biology or something like that it's not what liberty is um and i see the matrix is kind of like a it's like a neo-gnostic presentation uh about what constitutes uh counter-establishment uh energy and uh you know to me it's it's uh i mean it's an interesting film the first one uh the trilogy kind of trails off but the fourth one was really bad, but it does contain uh, a lot of truth, but it also contains a lot of, I think, uh, like I said, sort of fake counterculture narrative. Are there any movies that are just straightforward entertainment? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's plenty of, uh, you know, j movies that are comedic that don't have any agenda that, um, dumb and dumber. <laughs> yeah sure i mean yeah there's uh, you know I, I think typically uh propaganda although now it's it's more prevalent in all kinds of films including comedies which are not really funny anymore but i think typically the uh, propaganda was in like in the 80s and 90s it was mainly the big blockbusters right because they knew most people are going to be watching that so you want to put the the real meat of the propaganda in uh you know in something like transformer or something like uh you know true lies but arnold schwarzenegger movies right those would be more apt to have some kind of politically oriented propaganda or like we said uh, you know american sniper or argo or zero dark 30 um whereas art house films or independent made films i mean they're, they're much more likely or, or even as we said some comedies they're much more likely to just not be interested or utilizing um money for those purposes so blockbusters are quite important yeah because they're going to be seen by far more people than you know you might have a an independent comedy that be seen by a hundred thousand people versus you know how many people see specter 
maybe mm. 500 million right uh we did a breakdown on the on my tv show of avatar one um and i remember it you know it has this story of this narrative of oh well the the everything indigenous uh is natural and holistic and healthy whereas everything tech uh military is somehow bad now on one level i could agree with that because like today's military industrial complex right is, is very deceptive and manipulative in that we are not fighting wars for uh self-defense we're fighting uh, offensive wars for resources and energy control uh and uh, projecting um you know ridiculous neoliberal values across the planet so that's what the wars are really fought for you know you're fighting for mcdonald's and pepsi you're not fighting for you know because your small town and you know tennessee is going to be under attack from, from saddam hussein or something right so the wars are not about what we're told they're about they're about securing resources securing oil securing pipelines <clears throat> securing corporate interests neoliberalism and ultimately a malthusian agenda for the whole planet that's what it's really about but uh that doesn't make the intent the the human desire for uh self-defense and and patriotic values necessarily bad people are manipulated through that because those are good desires that are uh, as we said used and manipulated for malintent on the part of powerful actors and players so tell me i haven't seen avatar 2 so tell me tell me about that well, it's just basically uh, blue alien people good and white humans bad and and lots and lots and lots of swimming under the water. <laughs> oh, and, and adrenochrome. Well, you know, James Cameron is a curious figure because um, he's a big pusher of, uh, you know, the, the global agenda uh he's a huge promoter of veganism he puts out vegan propaganda he films propaganda for nasa i mean he's he's just kind of a, a big scale propagandist so i'm not surprised that avatar 2 is full of that how prevalent is occultic and satanic and freemasonic messaging in in hollywood it's pretty prevalent. I mean, <clears throat> certainly we've seen an uptick in that um, in the last decade or so because a lot of those uh, previously perceived to be not as uh, acceptable views um, were more subtle. <clears throat> I mean, obviously there was always B-movies and, you know, satanic horror movies or something like that, which not many people watched. But as we've gotten more and more <clears throat> um, toxified in terms of our culture, more and more of that has come out into the open. So I think we're seeing more and more uh, films that are completely brutalistic, that are uh, completely degenerate. Um, it's just sort of exploded, I guess you could say, in the last several years. Um, and I think that, <clears throat> you know, classics like Eyes Wide Shut, you know, I think Kubrick was kind of explaining to us how it really works. Whether he was a hero or co-opted, I, I don't know all of his motivations or whatnot. People always ask me, was he a good guy? I, I don't know. But, uh, regardless you know he put things into these films that really do show us a lot and you know that tells us that there is a, a structure a power structure part of which is into you know satanic occult type stuff uh and there's always been an overlap too with uh occult networks and intelligence agencies something that i've covered quite a bit because that's in a lot of the literature it's in a lot of history it's in a lot of history of masonic stuff because freemasons were for example kind of a network of intelligence agencies for the british empire 
Um, and then you've got other cults, which function as great uh, test beds and breeding grounds for all kinds of intelligence operations. If you need a loony tune to go and commit some act of terror, you pull, pull a guy from some crazy cult. He's perfect for that, right? So, you know, th that's why these things overlap. And that's why I call the book Esoteric Hollywood is because sex, cults, uh, and, and esoteric symbolism, they all, they all go together. But it's always negative. Every now and then, yeah, sure. There's plenty of movies that have had good messages. <clears throat> We've been watching a lot of um, older, my wife and I have been watching a lot of older uh, film noir from the you know, 40s and 50s. And <clears throat> there's quite a few good films and good messages even back then that even though, even ones that are propaganda, for, for example, I didn't realize that a lot of uh, Humphrey Bogart's films were actually um, World War II era propaganda. I'm not surprised. I just didn't realize it until we started going back through a lot of those. Um, and, and, and the same with Cary Grant. I think Cary Grant did have some uh, relationship to the intelligence agencies. I think he was uh, informing and, and spying to a degree on uh, fellow actors who might have sympathies with Axis powers uh, during the 40s. And then he probably continued that relationship to some capacity even after World War II. Um, we know Jimmy Stewart uh, played a key role in being very close to the FBI and, and <clears throat> uh, watching people that might, you know, have communist sympathies because he was a, you know, super duper uh, patriot and a, a, you know, Air Force dude. So, you know, th this has this has gone on, but there's plenty of movies with good messages. There was a lot of good dystopian films uh, in the '70s and '80s that had positive messages. You know, a lot of those old. Uh, Charlton Heston films, uh, th they had good messages, you know, Omega Man, uh, uh, Soylent Green, um, you know, Logan's Logan's Run. Those all had pretty good messages that were anti-dystopia, anti-technocracy. Um, but as we get up into uh, the 2000s, it's really, after 9-11, really, I think a lot of things take a big change, including not just American, uh, you know, loss of liberties and this kind of stuff. And the change in the whole mindset of the country, but um, you know the arts and, and Hollywood take a, take a, a turn as well. What did you think of Mel Gibson's The Passion? Um, there's I've good and negative. I've, there's good elements to it and some critical elements of it. It's told from a traditional Roman Catholic perspective, so uh, a lot of this sort of overemphasis on the the blood and the gore is something that I don't think is very compatible or it's not part of the orthodox ethos it's very much a, a traditional post-tridentine roman catholic idea so those elements uh i would be critical of but um you know i think mel gibson is a great example of somebody whose films there's a lot of good uh messages in a lot of his films he puts out a lot of good good content then you go all the way back to you know one of his classics conspiracy theory that's a classic and you know mel's a an old school conspiracy theorist. So I'm sure he he's known about all this for a long time. So yeah, he's, he's an example of somebody who has put out uh, good content. I mean, I think he did, he did, he did do some things that were not very wise, but mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, made some statements that weren't very wise, but um, you know, beyond that is I think that uh, yeah, he does seem to be anti-establishment. I think so. What sort of movies have there been that are predictive I'm thinking of Contagion. I don't know if that counts. Well, I think Contagion was 100% uh, a propaganda film. Absolutely. I mean, that's why you have, you know, basically people from CNN in the movie, right? 
Um, you've got, you know, Jude Law. You've got um, Gwyneth Paltrow. You, you, got, you got a lot of these figures that pop up in that movie uh, way ahead of time, you know, predicting a lot of things that I think were part of the narrative rolled out for Koof. So I, I, I did, uh, I even wrote a, uh, when, when it came out, I wrote an article on it at my blog back in, you know, 2011 or whenever it was that, 13 i don't remember when contagion came out somewhere in there 2011 i think i wrote an article at my blog and i put it up on twitter during the in the middle of coof because i had said back then i was like this is the narrative that they'll go with they're gonna go with a a uh, pandemic narrative at some point and of course they did uh, it took about 10 years but um yeah i think that's one example of something very predictive there's a lot of uh, these kinds of things in fiction um Blade runner yeah, sex bots and Blade Runner. Minority Report has pre-crime. They're rolling out pre-crime algorithmic uh, predictive software that helps you know cops supposedly predict where crimes are going to happen. This kind of stuff. Um, there's a lot of that, right? I mean, a lot of Star Trek had uh, predictive elements with um, where tech would come. Gadgetry. Uh, if you think about spy shows and spy movies a lot of times the gadgets that the spies have are gadgets that then roll out for the public 15 20 years later and i think that is part of the the uh, social conditioning i know the rand corporation for example was, was involved in consulting on the old star trek show and of course rand corporation is, is one of the big key think tanks that sort of drives uh you know the overall agenda of social engineering and where they want to take the country so there's many, many examples of that, and, that, and that's pretty, pretty much what I wrote two books about. Was uh, you know the not I didn't focus very much on subliminals, but I did, I did talk about predictive elements in film. I did talk about uh, you know archetypal symbolic manipulation in film, how that conditions us. Um, but you, you threw me for a loop there because now I wasn't. I have to think because there's so many examples of this. Um, the Truman Show seems to be eerily accurate. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, we did a podcast on that one. Um, I'll probably put... I'm working on part three now. I'll probably put a, a section on Truman Show in the, in the third one because that is one that we... I did a podcast on it, but we didn't really focus on it. Um, you mentioned Schwarzenegger earlier. Uh, wasn't the Terminator also fairly predictive in terms of using drones? Yes. Uh, not drones. And there's um, another one with absolutely uh, Skynet and... Mm. Yeah, and uh, any ja any Jacobson's Dark <clears throat> DARPA history book, she talks about going to the Pentagon and meeting with DARPA people, and then, that they had consulted with I think James Cameron and Kathleen Kennedy, producers obviously and directors that about some of that stuff. James Cameron, of course, from from that. So Skynet's based on an actual plan, the the you know plan they want to roll out. Um, but I forgot Arnold's also in uh, Six Day. That has a lot of predictive stuff, and a lot of Arnold's films actually from the eighties. Total Recall. Uh, a lot of these films have uh, predictive, especially the sci-fi. A lot of the sci-fi is the key for this kind of stuff. Do you think it's coincidence? Uh, it's both. It's both. So there, there's the degree of uh, both. Um, but <clears throat> what I did was really I just turned to the history of, for example, British spy fiction. What a lot of the spies would do in Britain because they had an Official Secrets Act was you can go all the way back to like Joseph Conrad or you go back to Graham Greene, these old uh, British spy intelligence agency connected people who would then write books about what was going on. So they would just write into fiction things that they couldn't write about uh, as if they were, you know, they, they couldn't leak it to the press because of the Official Secrets Act. 
And so a lot of American um, intelligence writers do the exact same thing where they, they go from spy world or whatever, and then they go to writing screenplays. So there's actually quite a bit of uh, scholarly academic literature on this. So it's not a conspiracy theory. There's a whole history of people going from the intelligence geopolitical espionage world to then consulting on uh, a lot of spy shows and writing the screenplays. You know, think about Homeland that's consulted on by intelligence people. Uh, basically, all of these shows are that way. The Americans, right, which is one of the best spy shows of all time, that was consulted on by various uh, Cold War CIA people. Uh, on and on and on. It's basically always been that way. That's that's the, the crux of this. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who is involved in spy shows is a spy, although sometimes even the actors are recruited into this, right? Ben Affleck talks about this. Uh, when we go back to you know the, the 30s, 40s, 50s, I did a whole video on uh, famous actors and actresses who were spies. Uh, there's a whole book now that I've been funny out because I was talking about this for a long time. And then uh, one of the mainline spy historians, uh, Christopher, I think it's Andrew, he just wrote a book called Stars and Spies. So the, and now it's mainline, right? Oh, yeah, it turns out there was uh, tons of famous directors and A-list actors who were spies. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's not a conspiracy there. <laughs> it's like it's just, just history. It's, I've been writing about it for the last 12 years. Are some writers just geniuses like Tolkien, or did he have these connections as well? No, Tolkien and Lewis, uh, they knew what people in the power structure of the Royal Society, like Bertrand Russell and the Tavistock Institute, they knew what they were up to. So they wrote into the fiction, uh, you know, especially C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, when you get to the third one, he talks about Tolkien, and Tolkien is the hero of the third story. Uh, and then <clears throat> he makes that clear at the end of the first book in the space trilogy. And then it makes it clear what Lord of the Rings is about, right? So, I mean, it's about many things, but the eye of Sauron and, and, and Sauron together with Sauron, they're using technology to create this single control structure, all seeing eye surveillance system. So that was the plan that <clears throat> had been hatched by, you know, Royal Society elite, Fabian Socialists, all those people, uh, role in supranational affairs, uh, Milner Circle, which we've been lecturing about. I mean, that's what Brave New World's about. We just did a whole lecture through all of Brave New World. And he's talking about <clears throat> these people. Brave New World is about these people. He was part of it. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien are critiquing that. But in a very, very clever way. Right, because there's a section in, uh, it's the appendix of the first space trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, where he has a, letter that he writes to Tolkien as the character in the book. You have to read the book to see it. And it's Tolkien writing back to Lewis explaining that uh, there's no way he could talk about this because nobody would believe it. So he had to, he had to write it as fiction. There's no ethics involved. It's, it's unethical. But, I mean, that's the nature of power politics, right? Mm. I mean, in terms of geopolitics, it's not about ethics. It's about power. So... Uh, has nothing to do with ethics at all. But we still go and voluntarily watch all of these movies and allow our minds to be shaped. That's the scary thing. Yeah, I mean, humans have always enjoyed stories and storytelling. Um, that's more powerful as a medium of uh, of ideas than the news. Nightly news is boring. 
uh, reading off facts, but people prefer and love stories because there's something more fundamental, I think, about about a story than there is about facts um, that are disconnected or abstracted. And so myth-making, storytelling, that will always have uh, more power than anything else. You know, when we think on back on the history of uh, literature or religion, it's always stories. So, uh, you know, the, the, the most powerful books, the Bible or the Odyssey, you know, these are, these are classic archetypal stories. So that's why uh, we gravitate to films, and films are even more powerful because as I said earlier, there you have the manipulation of time and editing. You have the ability to implement multiple types of artwork. It's the visual and it's the auditory. You can import music as well. Um, so it just happens to be this extremely powerful form of propaganda that can be used for good or for evil. Uh, it's just unfortunate that this really powerful form of art uh, has been typically turned towards the use of you know, power structures for propaganda. It's all shifted now to streaming Netflix and HBO. Yeah, that is an interesting shift. I'm not exactly sure why it shifted away from, <clears throat> I guess, because of the, just simply the internet. I mean, uh, before the internet, you know, it was all about movie theaters. Uh, and then with, with the rise of the internet and streaming, it's always an exchange of convenience for art. You know, there's a discussion in Brave New World where the world socialist controller says you can't have beauty and truth and at the same time have happiness and convenience. You have to sacrifice one or the other. And he says that in our technocracy, we've sacrificed beauty and truth for uh, complete mass drugging and complete control and complete stability and happiness. Now, by happiness, he just means everybody, um, you know, being drugged and being mind controlled zombies basically so i think in the same way now that we're seeing the rise of streaming and internet and video gaming that's all basically if you want to talk about the matrix i mean that's prepping everybody to go into their coom pod and live in the matrix that's that's what that's all about so that's where that's all heading that's why they're so happy to have you know the the rise of I don't know metaverse and all this stuff which if it if it works if it pans out it'll be a total dystopia like the matrix but um there's also indicators that they may not even come to fruition a lot of these tech things that they push and promote they don't they, sometimes they fail so what is your favorite movie i mean i like a lot of movies because there's a lot of different types of genres and you know movies that fit different moods so i would probably have you know multiple favorites and multiple genres i don't have one favorite movie um but i think movies that really show how the world works would be the godfather trilogy that's a, a, one of the best series of movies that's ever been made uh even the third one which everyone hates on actually shows quite a bit of how the world works i just lectured through this whole gladio book which is actually about the same stuff the assassination of john paul the first that's in godfather three um but, you know, I like a lot of uh, spy movies. I like a lot of um, David Lynch movies. I like a lot of, uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's that's what comes to mind. And uh, conversely, what is the worst movie ever made? <laughs> uh, well, there's a lot of B movies that are garbage, which, you know, 
there's always a worse B movie. Um, I'm a big fan of Mystery Science Theater 3000 and Rift Tracks. And uh, Rift Tracks says that the worst one they've ever done is Things, which I agree, Things is probably the worst B movie or C movie. But worst theatrical release movies would be uh, Gigli and Spawn, easily. <laughs> what do you worst... think? What's your favorite movie and what's the worst movie? Uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy is my favorite. Yeah, I like, I like that. Um, I think what's the, the worst, worst. I think fear.com. <laughs> is that a, like a horror movie or something? I think so. A thriller. I actually watched it in the cinema and I walked out. Okay. Yeah, I've walked out of a few movies, yeah. Have you ever fallen asleep in a movie? Sure. I mean, in the cinema, not in your lounge. Yeah, sure. Which one? <sighs> oh, a few. I, I've probably done that four or five times in my life. <laughs> I don't remember the last one I fell asleep to, but... I fell asleep in Harry Potter, the very first one, and then I didn't ever watch any... <laughs> I didn't watch any more after that. Well, um... Seems like a, I think we went to see uh, some Sandra that that's the reason we went to see is that we hadn't been in the movies in so long and it was during the coof and I think it was like when the coof was starting to lift and you could finally go back to the movies and we went to see that Sandra Bullock that stupid Sandra Bullock movie because uh, it was like the only movie that we could, that was out and uh, I think I fell asleep in that one I don't remember the name of it we did do a podcast on Harry Potter uh, about three or four months ago and it got pretty good traction on YouTube. I don't remember what we came to in terms of the only thing I could think of off the top of my head would be that it's really sort of just opening up kids to, you know, the occult uh, and getting them into those kinds of worldviews, which really don't lead you anywhere. I mean, they're always, it's the thing that the draw of the occult is that people think they're going to get power and secret knowledge and they're going to get some kind of edge out of it. Uh, and really, it just funnels you into stupid controlled movements. I mean, like witchcraft for girls typically steers them into feminism. And so it just kind of ruins them uh, for, you know, becoming a mom and that kind of stuff. So that's, I think, the main function of why they promote those kinds of things. Um, but one, the, the other thing I noticed re reviewing Harry Potter was that she really just uh, borrowed uh, tons of elements of Lord of the Rings from Tolkien. And she borrowed a bunch of elements of ancient, uh, you know, Homer, Iliad and Odyssey stuff, and just repackaged it. So it was, it was very much a formulaic, just kind of a copy and paste from other other uh, fantasy sci-fi. Um, why it got to be so popular, I'm not sure. You're talking about positive messaging earlier, and I'm suddenly reminded of Narnia. Yeah, I think Narnia overall is a good message. Uh, you know, we were talking about the Space Trilogy, and we did a whole podcast on Lewis's Space Trilogy, which is overlooked because it's kind of like one of the few Christian dystopias. Uh, there's not a lot of a lot of those out there, and, and nobody pays any attention to it because the messaging of the Space Trilogy is so uh, excellent. Uh, it's really phenomenal literature. Um, it's more way more sophisticated than Narnia. Narnia is definitely for like a you know, teen, uh, teen audience. Um, it still has some interesting symbolic elements to it, but the space trilogy is far more sophisticated and dense and difficult. It's uh, it's, it's very difficult literature, uh, sort of like the grad school version of what's in Narnia, but overall, I think Narnia definitely has good messaging. Sure. You know, it's, it's a Christian themes, atonement, you know, deep symbolism, this kind of stuff. 
closer you get up to the present time, the less likely it is that you're watching anything that has any value at all. So the further you go back, I think the better quality you get. So that's one rule of thumb. So just the further that you go forward in time to the present is like, that's the less, less that you should watch anything. And the further you go back, more likely, not, not uh, foolproof, but more likely that you'll find something quality. So I would just stay away from most pop culture, stay away from most of it because it's mostly junk. Um, that's a good rule of thumb. Mm. And definitely, you know, watch stuff before your kids watch it. You know, don't let them be watching iPads all day long, doing whatever they looking at, whatever they want to. I mean, they're going to get brainwashed. Yeah. Cartoon Network is not for kids anymore. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's totally mm. propaganda and it's mm. toxic. And it's toxic by design. That's the thing is all this stuff is happening. It's not random happenstance. It's part of psychological warfare to demoralize and change the uh, change the whole culture and the whole society by um, attacking the minds and particularly the souls of the youth. Wait, wait, how far can it go before it reaches that singularity? I mean, did you see that performance by Sam Smith? The Grammys? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did a podcast on that. Um, well, the good news is that uh, a lot of it's dying, right? I mean, Disney stock has plummeted. Netflix stock plummeted. Uh, so the more that they push it, the less popular it is. But I think they don't care and they're just part of an agenda. So um, how far can it go? I guess that's up to us, whether we're going to allow it to keep being pushed uh, like this or whether you know people are going to just vote with their dollars and stop supporting and funding all these uh, mm. you know toxic entities. That's the best way. Like I was just seeing people today talking about um, you know pulling their money out of the giant corporations that support a lot of this stuff, which we should have been doing that a long time ago because these giant corporations, the fortune 100, they've been pushing all this stuff for 30 years, 40 years. So we should have been pulling money out 40 years ago. So instead of us pointing fingers the whole time at them, we need to turn the finger around and say, Hey, we are responsible. Yeah. Because these things wouldn't have any power if they didn't get billions of dollars of revenue. You're standing on the battleground of the information war and you're looking out at the horizon. What is it that you see? What do I see coming? Mm. Um, I would imagine that they will play some kind of card of fake flag terror in the near future blame it on uh people that you know like maga or something like that i would say they're probably gonna continue to push uh all the uh degenerate toxic culture uh more and more um i would say that something like an economic collapse is probably in the cards that we could expect um that's probably already begun begun to happen very possible with the bank collapses I would say that they they might try to push another uh, scamdemic, uh, or they might even go with something wild and crazy like the continual promotion of uh, aliens, which I think is all just bullshit. Mm. That's what I see coming. Good enough. Jay, how can I follow your work? Uh, you can follow me on all the outlets that you 
could think of, you know, YouTube and Rockfin and Twitter and Instagram under the name Jay Dyer uh, or Jay's Analysis. My website's Jay's Analysis, and then you can get access to my archives and everything there uh, for a small fee. Jay Dyer, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Absolutely. Yeah, you can also get my books at the website too, in the shop. So thanks, Germ. It's great. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.